But I want to take you back to John chapter 13. Would you look back at John chapter 13, and we come back, as we begin last week, to one of the most memorable acts of Jesus, I would think, in all of the Bible. You may have your own special place, but certainly this must be one of the most memorable acts in all of the Bible, where he would wash the disciples' feet. Let me read our text. We read last week and studied John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. This morning we'll be looking at John 13, 12 through 17. Let me read 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed, he said, are you if you do them. What a rich passage in the opening verses. He stooped down, and maybe we'll touch on that in a moment, and washed the disciples' feet. Remember I said that as we come into this chapter, we're really hitting a watershed issue in the Gospel of John. Chapters 1 through 12, sometimes we can call that the book of signs. The book of signs, and it centers really on Jesus' public ministry to the crowds. And we call it the book of signs because he provided a series of signs or miracles that reveal his deity. And uh, there were seven that we looked at in the scope, and we saw that it was revealing his person, his identity. When we come to chapters 13 through 21, there's how to frame the book, it's called the book of glory. So we've got the book of signs 1 through 12, the book of glory in 13 through 21. And 13 through 21 doesn't center around his public ministry that closed at the end of 12 Chapter 13 and ongoing centers around the hour of his glorification. The hour, of you, if you will, of the cross that was promised in chapters 1 through 12. But when you get to chapter 13, his audience is narrowed. He is alone, at least in 13 through 17, with his disciples. In fact, we call 13 through 17... It's known as the Upper Room Discourse. And in these five chapters, we really see the very intimate teaching from our Lord about humble service, His teaching on love, His teaching on the Holy Spirit, His teaching on heaven, His teaching on our union with Him in Christ, and His teaching, of course, in John chapter 17, on prayer. That is the upper room discourse in 13 through 17. Kent Hughes, the author, said, nowhere else, I thought this was neat, he said, is his speech at once so simple and so deep? Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. He said, on no other page, even of the Bible, have so many eyes glistened with tears, looked And had their tears dried. He said the immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber 
are his highest self-revelation in speech. End of quote. Quite a statement. We look on that this morning. Now remember as we started last week in John 13, specifically with the foot washing that runs from one uh, verse 1 down through 17, we broke it up into the two focuses of, of the foot washing. We looked at the first focus last week and we called it the symbolic act of spiritual cleansing often overlooked. And when I call it a symbolic act, of course, he physically stooped down to wash the disciples' feet. But we noticed there that there was more than just the physical act. There was a great spiritual truth represented in that spiritual cleansing. You can get the tape on that or listen to that, excuse, excuse me, on the internet. But you remember, look at verse 4 as we just touch on that. He rose from supper. Now remember, as it says that he rose, rose from supper, that's the Lord's Supper, as we call it. This is Passion Week. I just don't want you to lose sight of that. He came in on Sunday riding on the colt, and they proclaimed hosannas. It is Thursday night. He will be lifted up on his cross in 15 to 18 hours. It's Thursday night. He is at that supper that we call the Last Supper, that we call the Lord's Communion. And while he's at that supper, look at verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments. We said last week that he didn't lay aside an outer garment, singular. He laid aside his outer garments, plural. And if you can imagine this, he's in that last supper. He rises in the midst of that supper. He takes off his garments, if you will. Probably just has somewhat of a loincloth on. And he takes up the role of a servant. You'll notice in verse 4, he takes a towel. He ties it around his waist, if you will. He's stripped down. And if you can imagine this towel, that would be probably wrapped around his waist. That towel was a long towel. It would usually go over the shoulder. He would wrap it around his waist. It wouldn't stay at his waist. It would drop down to his feet. Amazing thought here. And he begins to use the towel to dry the disciples' feet. But if you look at the text again, look at it there. It says that he laid aside his outer garments, verse 4, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. I'm sure the disciples were in stunned silence. What is he doing? He began to, there it is, wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What an incredible scene. Remember I shared with you just briefly last week this table. In fact, maybe it was a little longer than this pulpit here. And we said that those table, you remember, would be low to the ground. And they wouldn't sit at a chair. They would recline at the table. The table may be just coming up so high. And usually it was very customary for these disciples or people in that time to lean into that table. They would usually lean on their left elbow. And as they're leaning at that lower table, their feet would be extended. And with their right arm, they would get, you know, start eating the food that was at the table. It was usually a U-shaped table. And there's the picture. There's the 12 disciples there. There's Judas there, according to 13, 1 and 2. He's at that table. They're kind on their left arm. And in the midst of that, that supper that was going on, they're talking about, in Luke 22, Who's the greatest? Can you just picture that? He's about ready to die. He knows he's going to die. His hour has come. And they're around this table. And rather than protecting 
the Messiah, rather protecting the Son of God, rather than coming alongside him. They're leaning over to each other, and you know, hey, I was at the, I don't know, I'm, I was at the Mount of Transfiguration, and you really couldn't believe that. Maybe Peter's saying, you know, I, I'm the guy who said, um, thou art the Son of the living God. You know, and who, I don't know what they're talking about, but we know according to Luke 22, they're in conversation with each other, who's the greatest? And as they're reclining at the table, all of a sudden he gets up. I do not know what happened at that moment. He gets up, I think it went silent, he takes that pitcher, if you will, that he poured water into the basin, and he begins to go around and wash the disciples' feet, stunning. I mean, what do you say about it? It's one of the most memorable acts. He begins to wash their feet, which I said last week, he probably presumably washed Judas's feet, knowing the whole time that he would deliver him. This is our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Such an act of selfless service to a group of men at that very moment who were talking about who was the greatest. If you can just grab this, fathers, this morning, from your angle as you think about being a husband, or if you're in junior high, or you're in high school, that this is what you're to do. That This is what he's called you to, mothers. This is what a biblical father does. In other words, this is what a Christian does. But if you can imagine this second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, creator of the world, eternal word stoops to wash their feet. The Lord of glory is serving these disciples. And you remember that we said that that spiritual cleansing was, remember when he came to Peter and Peter said to him, look at eight, you shall never, the thought would be, no, never wash my feet. Jesus said quite strongly, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then typical of Peter, he said, Lord, not only my feet also, he says, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And he goes overboard and we discuss that. And then Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And Peter, you are clean. He says, but not every one of you. And we talked about that spiritual act of cleansing that was seen in that foot washing service. An amazing, amazing picture. Remember, we said that that foot washing uh, foreshadows the cross. And it would be at the cross that the Lord would cleanse his own from their sin. And it would be at the cross that he would provide for us our ongoing spiritual cleansing in sanctification. In other words, he says, Peter, you're already clean. You've already been justified. You've already been redeemed by me. You just need your feet washed. In other words, as we travel as pilgrims and disciples in this world, if you've already been saved, then you don't need a bath again. You just need your feet cleaned, and I explained that last week. But listen, that is not the only truth that the Lord taught here. Go back and listen to that online because we often miss that truth. There's another truth here. He wanted you, he wanted these disciples also to learn the importance of loving service. So there's the two focuses. There's a spiritual act in that cleansing that's being done. But the foot washing, secondly, is an example to us of his love and service to us. Okay, And so I want to look at the power of that example the power of that example of service. And then secondly, I want to give you two applications 
of that service that will leave, I trust, an indelible mark of humble service that you would have towards other people, okay? I don't think this is super difficult today. In other words, sometimes there's a pithy truth that you uncovered that we did last week between the bath and the feet and the spiritual meaning of that. But this week, it is just the power of example. And then I want to share with you two applications that flow from that. In fact, pick up the text with me in 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place again at the table, he said to them, asked them a rhetorical question. Do you understand what I have done to you? He's pressing them. He's pressing them. Now, he asked them if they understood. Verse 12, Jesus says, what I have done to you. There's a sense that they didn't understand. They couldn't understand. You say, well, Scott, why do you say that? Well, because in verse 7, go back. Remember last week? Jesus answered him, speaking specifically to Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now. He said, but afterward you will understand. I think he's talking about after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, and certainly after the imparting of the Holy Spirit, they're going to understand. So there was a sense that they couldn't understand in verse 7 until after those things. But here, in verse 12, he sits back, he reclines at the table, he's probably on his left elbow, and he looks across that low table and says, do you understand what I've done to you? Now let me, let me just be clear here. This seems to be the transition. His sacrifice on the cross cannot be repeated, okay, One time he went in and died and purchased our salvation, died for our sins. But I would tell you that his example is to be repeated. And though the foot washing pointed to a profound spiritual truth, the text now points to an incredible example that you must follow. So he returns to his seat, puts his garments back on, and then drives home the lesson to his disciples as well as the lesson to us this morning. Now, whether the disciples understood or not, here's what he said to them. Look carefully at verse 13. Look, Jesus said to them, it must have been just quiet in that room. He said, you call me teacher and Lord. And I love when Jesus says, and you are right, for so I am. In other words, you call me teacher and Lord. It is certainly a title of respect. You call me in the language rabbi. You call me curios, Lord. Sometimes Lord is just used for a title of respect in some places. But usually in the Gospel of John, when you see that title Lord, it's signifying what you think in your mind, Lord, that he's God in the flesh. In fact, He is Lord, and that's the teaching of the New Testament in Acts 2.36, where there the apostles said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He truly is Lord. And if he's Lord, then you need to submit to him, right? I'm just talking straight to you. He's Lord. Is he that of your own life? He is by person, but he says, you have rightfully said, I'm teacher and I'm Lord. And Acts 2.36 says that he's both Lord and Christ. 
Do you remember in the book of Philippians when Paul said in 2, he said, God has highly exalted him after his death and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. It says to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord. We just sung that he is the judge of the living and the dead, and all of you will stand before him. So he is, Jesus says, teacher and Lord. You remember at the end of John's gospel in 2028, when doubting Thomas, as we know it, answered him after the resurrection when he appeared, my Lord and my God. The truth is, and we saw this in the opening 12 chapters, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. He has power over the ability to create food. He has power over fever. He has power over legions of demons. He has power over water. He has power over wine. I mean, he is Lord, okay? He is very God. Jesus in John chapter 5 said, I am equal in essence and equal in authority with God the Father. And you'll note, you know, here, look again, when it says that in verse 13, he said, and you are right, and Jesus says, for so I am. In other words, I am teacher. I am Lord. And then he drops this bomb. (laughs) Look at the bomb that he dropped at the table there, verse 14. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here's the truth today, you also ought to wash, what, one another's feet. Now, just for a moment, and I don't know if it's significant, probably I should tell you that I think it is. Did you notice just something in the language, the way he said that? He reversed the order. They said, you are teacher and you are Lord, but you'll note that Jesus said, if I then, maybe just for emphasis in verse 14, when he says, your Lord and teacher, he reverses the order. So what's the point here of verse 14? I think you understand. It's not hard to see. The argument goes from the greater to the lesser. He drives his point home. If I, the Lord, if I, the creator of the world, If I, the sustainer of the world, if I, the second person of the Trinity who dwelt in unapproachable glory, stoops to wash the feet of another, then Grace Church of the Valley, you ought to do likewise. You ought to do likewise. That's really the point. You say, well, why would I do that? Look at the text in verse 15. It's what we call a clause. We can call it, technically, if you want the word, it's a gar clause. Verse 15, 4. There it is. Here's why. He said, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. There's the power of example. Surely, Jesus said, if I, the Lord of glory... Serve as a slave, washing the feet and drying the feet 
of those, we would say, who are very far below him, then shouldn't you, as his disciple, render loving service to one another in the spirit of genuine humility? In other words, if he's done it, and he's Lord, then from the greater to the lesser, then you ought to do it. Now, listen. If you just put yourself back there, and the language puts it in what we call sometimes the historical present tense, it just strikes me that he doesn't rebuke him there. You know, sometimes the best teacher is an example. Just show someone. But, but at least here... He doesn't scold them. I mean, they're talking about who's the greatest. Maybe Peter's saying, hey, I'm more important than you, John. Hey, even though you're leaning next to him on his breast, you you weren't there. You didn't say, I mean, who knows what they were saying. But he doesn't humiliate them. He doesn't say shame on you. He says, the example that I have given you, he said, you do likewise. Imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, is that hard? Yeah, it's hard. Because I think pride sets in. And so Jesus gives this emphatic statement again. Look at the scripture. He raises it up and he gives amen and amen. We translate it truly, truly. In other words, it's an important statement. He said, I say to you in verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. What a great statement there. In other words, no servant, none of us here, myself, all of us, can think we are exempt from task cheerfully undertaken by our Lord. In other words, you cannot feel as though you are exempt from acts of service that even our Lord Jesus Christ performed. I think this statement is on the scripture. This is what he said in Luke's gospel. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table Or the one who serves? Rhetorical. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? The answer would be yes. Usually those would be the honored guest. And the one who were serving at the table are there serving the guest. But Jesus says, but. He said, I am among you as one who serves. So beloved, remember that that same graciousness that the Lord extended to us is the same grace that we need to extend to others. And just as he covered their sins, if you will, in the discussion of who was the greatest, we need to be very, very careful that we don't bite and devour one another and become consumed by one another. So, beloved, here it is. You have the power of example. What is it? You have to rise. You have to get down. You have to wash one another's feet And you cannot feel superior to others in this body. That's the power of example. I mean, it's there. You can see it. But let me just drive it home, okay, with two applications, okay? Two applications. We'll look first at the historical application. Then secondly, let's just say a personal application. First, the historical application. I think I need to answer this. I think you want to know this. 
Do you practice this today? (laughs) I mean, do you just take verse 14 literally? Look at it. If I, the Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also, or you also ought to wash another's feet? Do you take that literally? I mean, we have to discuss that. It's a historical application. Is is this an ordinance? I know people who practice this. Could be some in our own community. Sometimes brethren churches practice this. In other words, what I'm saying to you, they've made this an ordinance. You have the ordinance of the Lord's table, okay, where we partake of communion. We do that twice a month here. We also have another ordinance that's called baptism, and we probably baptized close to 10 people this summer on the river at Summerfest. Those are ordinances. Some people say, listen, if Jesus washed people's feet, then we ought to do likewise, and they take it literally. In fact, in some traditions, foot washing became part of what is known as Maundy Thursday. Have you heard of that? M-A-U-N-D-Y. It's called Maundy Thursday. And, and it's a ritual that they do. In fact, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, which is my background, not in the traditional church, but I'm Greek, you know what they'll do? The archbishop will come out on Maundy Thursday and recreate the foot washing scene with 12 priests, and the archbishop goes around, cleans their feet, and kisses each of their feet. Maundy Thursday in the Greek Orthodox tradition, okay? That's what they do. Today, in the Catholic Church, on Maundy Thursday, the popes, the bishops, the abbots, and the others have often washed the feet of junior clergy, and sometimes, it says by one writer, they even wash the feet of paupers. Now, there's people who perform this service today, okay? They wash the feet. Now, listen, I don't want to become over the top here. If you've been part of a foot washing ceremony, and it's providing a a look at something and a humble act, okay. Uh, But there's some churches that practice this on a yearly basis, We do not practice this as an ordinance or even an event, and here's why, okay? Let me just share this with you, and I don't want us to miss the principle here, because this is the only place that it's mentioned in the gospel, in the Bible. In other words, what I'm telling you is it's mentioned here, Jesus performed this, no question. We read it together last week and this week. But did you know that there's no foot washing service in all of the book of Acts? It's never repeated. There's no foot washing service ever recorded in the epistles, nowhere repeated. There's no foot washing even within early Christian tradition. It's never recorded. The closest thing that we see to this is in 1 Timothy 5.10 where the widow there washed the saints' feet. And I don't think we take that as an ordinance that that church is doing. It wasn't the church. It was a widow who was probably showing good hospitality to wash the saints' feet. 
when they stayed with her or when she had ministered to them. So I would say this to you. It is only stated once in Scripture, and therefore we should hesitate to make this a formal practice or an ordinance. The point here, do you agree with this, seems to be the heart of humble servanthood. That's what he's after. In other words, we don't want to restrict it to something external, beloved. It would be maybe, you would agree with me, easier to do that once a year. Maybe that'd be super hard too. On the other hand, if you woke up every day of your Christian life as a father and you said it's my role to serve my family, You see, it it goes far beyond just the service. There's an act of humble servanthood. In fact, let me just give you from church history a warning quite strongly by John Calvin. Calvin said this, and I think it brings the heart of it out. He's, He's speaking of a church. He says every year they hold a theatrical foot washing. And when they have discharged this empty and bare ceremony, they think they have done their duty finally and are free to despise their brethren. He said, but when they have washed 12 men's feet, they cruelly torture all Christ members and spit in the face of Christ himself. He said, this ceremonial comedy is nothing but a shameful mockery of Christ. Strong. And then Calvin said, Christ does not enjoin, he said, an annual ceremony here, but to be ready all through life to wash the feet of the brethren. I like that. All through life. I think that's the point that the Lord's after. He says, I've done this as an example to you, that you and your whole Christian duty would wake up with this on your heart. In fact, pink put it this way, A.W. Pink, that's a scholar, not a singer today. Um, He said, surely, quote, to insist upon literal foot washing from this verse is to miss the meaning, he said, as well as the spirit of the passage, end of quote. I think that's well said. The example we are to follow is not the feet washing per se. It is the humility conveyed in the act of service to another. So let me just clarify, that's a historical application, okay? That's the historical application. He provided that power of example that our whole life would be one of service. But secondly, there's a personal application, a personal application. Would you look back at the text just again here on this personal application? Jesus said, if you know these things, watch this, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, Grace Church of the Valley, put this into action. If you want to be blessed, if you want your family to be blessed, If you want your home to be blessed, if you want your business to be blessed, if you want brother and brother to be blessed and sister and sister to be blessed, if you want to be a blessing to your grandparents and if you want to be a blessing to your parents, then then put put this truth into action. He said you're going to be blessed if you do this. The smile of God will be upon you. And and here it's, 
It's in the present tense. Look at verse 17. Blessed are you if you are continually doing them. And that's another reason why I look past the act. In other words, this becomes part of your life. Now, I want to point something out to you. It's a little bit uh, technical, but to me it meant something. He says, look at it in 17. You'll notice there's two ifs there. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, what's interesting there is you can translate it this way. The if, the first if can be translated since. Since you know these things. And it's what we call an A, okay, transliterated with the indicative. Since you know these things, because you know these things. And that word if there, the first one, let me say this, presents a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact. You say, well, Scott, why would it be a fact? Because he just taught them. They're at the Last Supper with him. They saw him enact this. You've heard me since you know these things. You are blessed if you do them. But there's a second if there. Look at it in verse 17. Blessed are you if you do them. And it's different. You say, those are same words. I know, if and if. But the second if is different. It's the word Aeon, and aeon is a clause of less certainty. So, okay, pastor, what does that mean? The first statement is certain because or since you know these things, but the back end, you're blessed if you do them, is not so certain. And I think that's where we live. You live right there between those two. You know it's right. You've heard this teaching before. Here is the power of example. That's a statement of fact. If you know these things and you do, but the second one is less certain. And that's where we live. We're supposed to love each other like this. But I'm asking you as I ask my own heart, do you? All I would say to you as your shepherd is, Can you imagine what your home would be like if you did this? Fathers this morning, husbands who are here, can you imagine what your home would be like if you put the apron of a slave on and begin to serve other people? Wives, could you begin to imagine what your home would be like If you begin and the husband and wife relationship were both had this heart attitude in mind, could you imagine what our church would look like? Both in the community corporately, could you imagine what the church would look like, if you will, on the outside, if we just begin to serve other people? Could you imagine what your business would be like? If you begin to take on this role, student, can you imagine what would happen at CVC and Emmanuel and Kingsburg High, if you walked into the classroom with this in mind? Could you imagine what our homes would be like if the children who are in Christ said, I want to model this and begin to respect and honor their mom and dad? 
Can you believe what our church would be like if elders and deacons and deaconesses put on the apron of a slave and begin to wash other people's feet? We live in a world that wants everything instant and wants it everything now. And Jesus said in Luke 22, I'm a one, I am among you as one who serves. You say, well, Scott, if we serve that way, what will happen? Well, the Bible says, look at it in verse 17. He says, blessed are you. In other words, you will have a reward. You will be blessed. You will be the object of God's favor. You will be the object of God's smile. So you say, how do I release God's blessing? Far from name it and claim it and health and wealth, but by loving, sacrificially, unselfishly, selflessly, humbly, without any thought of personal gain, without any thought of personal fulfillment, without any thought of personal satisfaction, but completely committed, if you will, to the sheer well-being, the joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment of another person that you live amongst. I mean, I just, it'd be revolutionary. See, our Lord's example and command focuses on the heart of humility and the service done primarily to the saints. What a lesson. The foot washing foreshadows the cross that cleanses us from sin, but that foot washing binds us to one another in love. So here's the power of one example and two applications the historical application, the personal application that leave an indelible mark on our humble service to others. And I'm going to say it again. Can you imagine if our church was like this? You know, one of the problems of the church today is they spend so much time fighting with each other, they don't have time to know that people are on the outside dying and going to hell. And the day we become so internally problem-filled here and become selfish is the day that we become stagnant. And when you become stagnant, you just sit and soak and sour. But listen, once we understand the power of this example, can you imagine what that would be like if seven, 800 people turned their focus outward and begin to minister to other people? Like, I'll just tell you, my heart breaks for high schools. Do you know how many people contemplate suicide? Do you know the difficulties that are filled at both Christian and public high school? Can you imagine what would happen if we opened and shared an arm, if we empowered our students and we begin to be a change agent on both the Christian campus as well as the public campus? Can you imagine if we walked into the workplace and it wasn't about us and it was about other people? Can you imagine what would happen to personal businesses instead of fighting with each other and rivaling with each other? They begin to say, listen, I'm here to help you. How can I serve you? How can I make you better at, at what you do? Listen to what Jesus Christ said, and you know it. He said, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to this though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Maybe he's talking about the foot washing. Listen. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's our example. That's our example. You say, but Scott, 
how do I do that? I mean, if you're a high schooler, like you're a ninth grader, I mean, Daniel is changing a kingdom when he's 13, 14, and 15. I mean, what do we got going for our junior high, our high school, our college? I mean, we're getting enough college students now. I'm thinking, how do we impact Reedley? How do we impact Fresno State? How do we begin to, to launch that way? But you might say, what, what, what can I do? Well, can I suggest this for you? Can I just suggest a list of one another's to you? And, and the, the only reason I was thinking that is look back in verse 14. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash, there it is, one another's feet. Let me give you a few things that maybe you could put into practice this week, okay? Number one, I'm just going to throw them out there. Romans 12, 10. It says, outdo in showing honor to one another. Outdo in showing honor to one another. That's right out of Romans 12, 10. You say, what does that mean? That means when you walk into the church, you get in the parking lot, you don't just come into the church. You should be looking for people who are hurting could you imagine what would happen if our church, it says there, would outdo in showing honor to one another what would happen? Listen, you may come in and you may sit in this comfortable seat in this beautiful building that the Lord's given us, but I'm saying to you that we ought to take on the life of Christ. And when you walk in here, you need to look for someone. In fact, I was standing in the back talking to one of our regular people, and I saw a guy come in and he sat down somewhere over here and I didn't know who he was and I was trying to get to him. But can you imagine if all of us had that heart to look for faces? You say, but Scott, sometimes I do that. And I go to somebody and I said, hi, I'm so-and-so. And you meet so-and-so and you think you've never seen their face again. And then they say they've been here for three years. That's okay. Just say, I'm really glad to meet you. I've never seen you. Usually sit on that side or that side. But can you imagine what would happen to our church if we outdid, outdid each other in showing honor to one another? How about this one? Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. In other words, he doesn't tell you to live in hostility with each other. He doesn't tell you to fight with each other. He says, I want you to live in harmony with one another so that there's no issues in our flock. I'll tell you, what will take our church down is disunity. And when you become ingrown, then all of a sudden you lose your passion. So he says, you got to have the right relationships. And he commands us to live in harmony with one another. And then there's another one. In Romans 14, 13, don't pass judgment on one another. Don't, in other words, don't judge people. And those are the, that's the context of the stronger, weaker brother. He says in Romans 15, 7, welcome one another. I hope you do that on Sunday. I just hope we become a hothouse in here. When you just walk into this building, you shouldn't come and sit. You should find someone, talk with someone, get involved with someone, welcome one another. This is the body of Christ. This is not just something we're sitting at. This is the body of Christ that he died for and he placed you in it and we have a responsibility to one another to welcome each other. Romans 15, 4 says to instruct one another. Maybe that's just coming alongside someone. It says in Romans 16, 16 to greet one another and it says it all over, greet one another. It says in 1 Corinthians 12 to care for one another. It says to comfort one another. Listen, if you think you come in this building and everything's good, it's not. As one of the shepherds, I know it's not. There are so many people that come into worship with us that are hurting. 
I, I wish I could show you that. Sometimes our, our external hides what's internal. Some people just need to be cared for. Some people, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 11, just need to be comforted. You need to agree with one another, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. You need to, Galatians 5, 13, lovingly serve one another. Listen, I want you to be part of God's team. I said this morning, I, I say it usually every couple years, uh, that sometimes the church is like a football game. You heard that statement? You got 80,000 people looking down on 22 people who desperately need rest and 80,000 in the stands who desperately need exercise. And the church is like that. The church has got 22 people laboring exhaustively while the other 80, whatever, thousand are sitting and watching. Listen, I just want to tell you, we need you. Listen, I didn't come here to be comfortable. Our church needs you. You can't sit and soak. Now listen, you don't need a ministry to wash, it may be, the saint's feet. But you ought to just, would you just make that your heart's desire? What if we all just came in and did that? What if we just woke up, Lord, help me serve someone else today? And in fact, there's more. Don't provoke one another. Galatians 5.2. Galatians 5.26. Don't envy another. In other words, you can't envy one another what somebody else has. You have what you have from God. And if you have food over your head and clothing, with these we shall be, what? Content. But you come in and somehow a wedge gets in there. And you just upset what you don't have. And I just, listen, don't envy one another. You pray, you thank God that they're blessed and maybe you've gone without. You bear one another burdens in Galatians 6.2. You lovingly bear with one another, Ephesians 4.2. You're kind to one another, Ephesians 4.32. You forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32. You submit to each other, Ephesians 5.21. And by this means... You don't lie to one another. You know how huge lying is today? Kids, students lie to their parents all the time. Yeah, mom, dad, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to the football game. Kingsburg's playing in Emmanuel. You never go to the football game. You went out with some other people to another, inst- another destination. People lie. They lie in their school. He says, don't lie to one another. In other words, we're to be a holy group of a people here were to teach and admonish one another. Colossians in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 were to encourage one another. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.15 were to do good to one another. Just listen, could you imagine if we all did this? I mean, our church, that there would be such love in this place and humility in this place commitment in this place. See, I grew up at a church where people bypassed honeymoons and vacations to make the local church the bride of Christ. And if he died for the church and died for you, then our commitment back to him would be to do this. Now, we're not all doing this individually, but can you imagine? We are, but can you imagine if we corporately did it? We remained in the gifting that the Lord's given us. It says to daily exhort one another in Hebrews. Like, listen, there's some of you on the edge of divorce as I speak. And you're here. 
And I'm telling you, if, if that's you and you're a husband, you need to go today, get down on your knees and beg for mercy from your wife. Because whatever I'm talking about, you haven't been and you need to do that. You say, Scott, that's a little harsh. No, you're on the edge of something. And sometimes a wedge gets so deep that you can't get that back. But listen, you can try today if that's the case. I mean, listen, what we're doing here, this is the word of God. Can you imagine if we followed this example? The Bible says to stir up one another. Hebrews 10, 24. The Bible says don't speak evil against one another. The Bible says don't complain against one another. The Bible says confess your sins to one another. The Bible says to pray for one another in James 5. The Bible says to show hospitality to one another. The Bible says to be humble with one another. It's all laid out there right in the scripture. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I think the scripture comes up. Just let it sink in and we're done, okay? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet, for I has given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have perfect doctrine. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. I'm sorry. By this, all men will know if you dot every I and cross every T. No, it doesn't say that. By this, all disciples will know that, that you, you know, all people will know that you are my disciples, and you can see it, if you have what? Love for one another. Listen, as you walk from today, find some ways you can put this into practice, and we can be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen?